Well, good morning. Happy New Year. Good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, I am Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. And as Kristen said, we are headed back into the book of Acts. And as she also said, yes, we are going to finish through this. In fact, I was looking back, it was um, not just kind of two years ago, it was almost exactly two years ago that I started the book of Acts. January 9th, 2002, we open up to Acts chapter 1, verse one. Two years exactly. Pretty exciting that we're finally going to be <laughs> wrapping things up this year. And uh, we are going to be jumping back into chapter 19. And we've got a lot to cover today. So if you uh, haven't done so already, you can open up the YouVersion Bible app and uh, you can go to events there. You can follow along with everything I'm going to be covering. You can go back and use that for notes. All of our group discussion questions are in there as well. If you have your Bible, we will be in Acts chapter 19. Well, prior to Thanksgiving, uh, we, uh, we finished up uh, of the first part of chapter 19, and my last message was verses 8 through 22. And at the time of Acts 19, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, has made his way to the city of Ephesus on his third and final missionary journey. This is this third travel from Antioch of Syria, which was kind of home base for him throughout the Mediterranean and into sort of the Middle East and into uh, the lower part of Western Europe. Now, as he's traveling, he is going into the inner regions of the Roman Empire this time with the purpose of eventually making his, back, his way back to Jerusalem. He's actually, we know from other letters that he's written, he's actually going from church to church in the known area throughout Asia Minor, collecting money to bring back to the church in Jerusalem who is suffering dearly being persecuted. They have very little economic basis within their church. And so he's going from church to church to ask them to help contribute to the church in Jerusalem. And one of his stops is in Ephesus. Now, his stop in Ephesus is actually his longest stop in any one city that he visits. Paul would be there a little more than two years, almost as long as it's taken me to get through this book. And additionally, his time spent there would also be some of the most impactful and, well, strange, very strange. For instance, uh, in verses 8 through 22 that we covered before Thanksgiving, Paul is going through Ephesus. He's performing miracles among the people of Ephesus when this group of Jews decides, hey, we want to be like Paul. And so they start to attempt to cast out demons and do all of the same things that Paul is doing in the name of Jesus without any commitment, surrender, or relationship with Jesus. And so they're unequipped with the Holy Spirit. And even the evil spirits that they're trying to cast out are like, who, the, who are you? Who are you? What are you doing here? You don't know Jesus. I'm not leaving this person. Get away from me, right? And so at the end of that passage, it says that this, this, uh, this sort of thing is going on and, and these people end up getting battered and beaten because people are upset by them trying to impersonate who Paul is. And as the news spreads about all of this, people begin to place their faith in Jesus in mass. And it results in them leaving the many sinful ways of living that they had prior, including their use of the dark arts and sorcery, which was very popular in Ephesus in the first century. So deep was the effect on people as they followed Jesus that many of the books of magic and sorcery that they had and owned are burned in the public square. 
And Luke records that by his records and by our records, the books that were burned would have been worth several million dollars in today's economy. This, as you might imagine, sends some shockwaves through the city of Ephesus, which is where we're going to pick up the story in verse 23. Luke records, at about that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. Now, I want to just pause here because in the first century, the word Christian or Christianity was very new, and it was only used in certain places throughout the Roman Empire. And where the church was getting started, though, many people would refer to the, po- the people following Jesus as people of the way. In fact, this is the third time in Acts the church is referred to in this manner. And it's interesting that those looking in on the church, those who are not a part of the church, those who are not following Jesus in the first century, they never saw these people as a group of people who have developed some system of belief or some brand new institution. They saw it as a certain way people were deciding to live, which is a really important distinction for what comes next. Verse 24. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith, who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together, along with others employed in similar trades, and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you have heard, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all, and he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Okay, so in the first century, the city of Ephesus was a fairly important city within the Roman Empire. It was a port town through which various merchants and trade routes went, and it was really prosperous wealthy people lived in Ephesus. There was a lot of money to be made in the city of Ephesus. And it was there, it was because there was this place called the Temple of Artemis that laid at the center of the city of Ephesus. And it was the center of worship for the Greek god Artemis. The Romans referred to her as Diana. And Artemis was the god of fertility. And among the Greeks, she was the most worshipped deity among all of them in the known world at the time. People would travel from all over the world to come and to worship Artemis at her temple in Ephesus, which, by the way, so happens to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's how beautiful this place was. In the first century, the temple of Artemis would have looked something like this. This is a rendering of what it might have looked like in the first century. It was double the size of the Parthenon, 420 feet, 25 feet long. It's about a football field and a half in length, 225 feet wide. It was held together by 127 columns, each 60 feet high and four feet wide. And at the center of it was a giant black stone statue that was believed to have have fallen from the sky like a meteorite, Artemis come to earth. Now, people would go to the the temple, and some would travel long distances, and they would go there to cash in on the promise of fertility and long life, protection during pregnancy and childbirth, 
and for a lot of people, just plain old sexual fulfillment. And because of that, as you can imagine, the worship of Artemis was grotesque. It was common for erotic sexual acts to be happening all throughout the temple area, even outside of it. People would also make large financial donations to Artemis at the temple, which was one of the main reasons for the booming economy in Ephesus. So like if you've ever been to Las Vegas or Disneyland, somewhere that's really touristy, you have the main attraction, right? But then there's all of these things around the main attraction that are making their money and their wealth off from the popularity of the main attraction. You know what this is, right? If you go to Las Vegas, you have all the casinos, but around the casinos are the, the, the like scammiest touristy shops you've ever been in, where you can buy snow globes of, you know, the, the Las Vegas Strip, and you can write it, you can get a t-shirt that says what stays in, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You can get it all, right, at these touristy shops. And the owners of those tourist shops are making a lot of money off from the fact that people keep showing up to a place like Las Vegas or Disneyland to spend their hard-earned time and money. Demetrius and the silversmiths are like a tourist shop around the temple of Artemis. People are traveling to the temple of Artemis to worship, to give of their financial offerings, and Demetrius and his buddies are beneficiaries of them spending their hard-earned time and money going to the temple. They're making silver statues and selling them so that people can go home with a silver statue of Artemis. What a great reminder of this time spent in Ephesus. They made these statues so that locals and visitors could purchase them, take them home, and worship them even in their home. home. But with the rise of the way of Jesus, Christianity in Ephesus, all of a sudden, fewer people are purchasing many Artemises, right? I mean, Paul is preaching in the public squares, and he's telling people that uh, he's telling people about the risen Jesus, and letting people know that no black stone, freaky meteorite thing in the temple, or little tiny silver statue, could ever take the place of the one true God. And people are handing their lives over to Jesus, and they're stopping. Their purchase, these little trinkets. Amen. And so Demetrius and their fellow silversmiths, well, they're ticked, right? Sales are down. Pressure is rising to revive their economic prosperity. You know, someone's got to pay the car payment. Who's going to do it? In fact, so disturbed is Demetrius about this trend that he incites the emotions of those outside the business of the temple. He doesn't just gather those who are being hurt by it financially. He actually goes into the streets and he incites the emotions of those who are, are, are sort of just there listening to all that's going on about Artemis. He appeals to their devotion to Artemis herself. This is what he does in verse 27. He says, of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia, Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. Let me ask you a question. 
do you believe Demetrius really cares about the religious implications of Artemis losing influence? Heck no. What does Demetrius care about? His wallet, right? And the size of it. Demetrius only cares about what this means for him, but he knows how to manipulate the masses. Got to give him credit for that because his speech is very successful and convincing to those listening. Look what happens next. Verse 28. At this, their anger boiled and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging Gaius and Aristarchus, Aristarchus sorry, who, were Paul, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Now, the amphitheater in Ephesus is actually still there today. You can go and visit it. This is it. It's massive. It'll see 25,000 people. And it was cut into the side of a mountain, as you can see, which just enhanced its amplification throughout the valley in Ephesus. If there was something happening in the amphitheater, you could hear it miles away because of its ability, the acoustics of what was going on in the space. Now, what's really funny to me is that as soon as all of this starts happening, Paul sees the amphitheater filling up and he's like, let me in. I want to preach the gospel, right? Like, let me at them, right? There's 25. This is the biggest audience I've ever had in my life. And the, you know, some cooler heads prevail. They're like, dude, you cannot go in there right now. They will mob you. They will kill you. You will be nothing left of you. And this is what happens, verse 32. Inside, the people were all shouting some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. Can you see Alexander? Like, don't, I don't want to talk, right? Like, leave me alone. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again. And they kept it up for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine the scene? 25,000 people shouting at the same time, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, for two hours. After 10 minutes, I'd have been like, they get it, enough. Why are we still here? But they're relentless. And what's really interesting is that most of them that are there, they don't even know why they're there. They just saw this commotion stirred up and they thought, well, this looks fun. Let's join in, right? I don't know what this is all about, but they got the mob mentality and they started running through the streets to the amphitheater and now they're screaming, great is Artemis. They probably don't even believe that, but they're there and they're screaming it. By verse 34, you have thousands of people screaming the praises of Artemis and they're not even sure why. For two hours all because one guy is sad he wasn't selling enough mini Artemises. Now, somebody needs to put an end to this before it gets too out of control because there was anything that the, the Romans hated more. It was civil commotion. They hated it. So the town mayor finally jumps in 
to help. Verse 35, at last the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have not stolen, they've stolen nothing from the temple. They've not spoken against our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make their formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. I'm afraid we're in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government. Since there's no cause for all this commotion, if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Like, he gets it. What do I say? A bunch of people gathered because some guy's not selling enough silver statues? They're not going to like that, right? Then he dismissed them, and they dispersed. Unfortunately, for Paul and for the believers in Ephesus, cooler heads really do prevail here. The, the town mayor really is on their side, only from a legal standpoint, but it benefits them greatly. The mayor is able to talk the mob down and make Demetrius and those against Paul to deal with whatever issues they have in the courts. And you know what? From everything we know and everything we have recorded, nothing ever happens. Demetrius goes back to his shop and he cuts his losses. <laughs> the whole story is chaos. It's just chaos. But it examples to us how the spread of the Christian faith doesn't just affect an individual, but it actually has the power to affect a society. In fact, just before this event occurs, Luke writes this about what is happening in Ephesus. In verse 20, he says, so the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Not just on the individual, but on the entire community and society. Because when people place their faith in Jesus, things in the world, their world start to change. Even the economy starts to change. And when Jesus becomes bad for business, you can guarantee there's going to be an uprising. And this is not the only time that this has happened. It has happened time and time again over the course of history. In fact, in 1865, the Salvation Army was formed. Now, I don't know what your image is of the Salvation Army. It's probably of a thrift store down the street where you can drop your junk off, right? Like that's how we sort of understand the Salvation Army most of the time. But the Salvation Army is doing amazing things around the world. They, they do have millions of thrift stores or hundreds of thrift stores. They have rehab centers that help people. They have hospitals in some of the most needy areas in the world. And today the Salvation Army has a presence in 133 countries where they're serving the most needy. But what you may not know is that 15 years after the Salvation Army's inception, things started to get really ugly for them. They weren't even sure if they were going to make it. By 1880, groups of people were beginning to oppose the work of the Salvation Army. And shortly thereafter, a new organization was formed, the Skeleton Army, a real thing. This opposing force sought to undermine the work of the Salvation Army at every point, from interrupting their open-air services to impersonating themselves as Salvation Army members. The skeletons wanted nothing more than the Salvation Army to go away. 
Now, what's most interesting is who was part of the skeleton army. Those who were part of it, they didn't care about the message the Salvation Army was bringing about Jesus and the spiritual revival they wanted to see. What made them oppose the Salvation Army was that they were really bad for business. Leaders and members of the Skeleton Army were primarily composed of local business owners. Namely, they were owners of local bars, brothels, and gambling halls. And as the Salvation Army began to have an impact on the city of London, people's lives were changed, and they began to use their time and their money and their energy in different ways. And fewer people visited the bars, brothels, and gambling halls. So those who are in charge of these establishments, they're not happy about it, so they organize and they rise up against the Salvation Army. When a person surrenders their life to Jesus, it intimately affects the way they live, how they use their time, how they use their money, the people that they associate with. Every inch and aspect of a person's life begins to change in the way of Jesus. Now, you know, this story is ultimately not a story about a riot. This is a story about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This story is about what happens to people when they decide to follow Jesus. When people decide to surrender their lives to follow Jesus, things change because following Jesus destroys the temples of our past. I need you to hear that today. Some of you really need to hear that today. That following Jesus destroys the temples of our our past. For those first Christians in Ephesus, their relationship with Jesus became ultimate. The temple of Artemis and the trinkets they held onto were of no use to them now that they had a relationship with the living God. The riot in Ephesus occurs because as more people follow Jesus, fewer people care about Artemis. God begins to destroy the worship, the false worship of idols in their lives, and they just, they follow the way of Jesus. And it is really bad for business for some people. And the same holds true today. When a person surrenders their life and follows Jesus, it begins to erode at their need to worship at the temples they've been devoted to all their life. And trust me, we have our temples. You know, we we may not be yelling, great is Artemis, but we yell other things. Like, great is my sports team. Unless you're a Vikings team, you would never do that. Or a Vikings fan, you would never do that. <laughs> Great is my money. Great is my iPhone. Great are my kids. Woo-hoo. Oh, don't cheer for that. That's not good. Right? We, we, we've got our cheers too. I mean, it's not Artemis, but man, you name it. We've got our temples. We are no different than those in the first century. Apart from Jesus, we will worship at the temple of something. You will do it. You will do it. 
But here's the thing. The more that we come to know Jesus, the more we look around at all of the trinkets and all of the temples that we've gathered, and we realize this is useless. Everything takes a backseat to the devotion and commitment to him and him alone because we realize nothing is as valuable or worthy of our worship and devotion like Jesus. By the way, have you ever heard someone say great great is Artemis? No. Or better yet, have you ever known someone to have a silver statue of Artemis like on their desk? Right? It would be really obvious because she has multiple breasts. You'd be like, what is that? <laughs> have you ever seen that? If you have seen that, report that person. Okay? I mean, it's possible that many of you have never even heard of Artemis until this morning. Do you know why? She's gone. The worship of her and her temple, well, it's, it's gone. Tyler, can you show the original picture I showed of the Temple of Artemis, the one? No, not that one. Go back. Can you jump up to that one, the one that it used to look like? Yeah, that's what it used to look like. Okay, show what it looks like today. That's what it looks like. That's it. Greatest Artemis. Within a few decades of this riot in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis would all be but dead, and within a couple hundred years, it would be gone. But do you know what's still alive and well and thriving? Jesus. Listen, I've been following on, um, on Instagram and stuff. There's a conference in Atlanta that has been this last week called the Passion Conference. And about 100,000, 18 to 25-year-olds gathered in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and they worshiped for three days. Don't tell me God is dead. Artemis is dead. Jesus is alive. And when you give your life to Jesus, nothing else should or could matter. He is the ultimate. Stop worshiping at temples that will bring you nothing, that will in the end end up like the temple of Artemis. Worship at the feet of the one who will live forever and ever and ever, Jesus Christ. Thousands of years after people were shouting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, there are still people gathering a strip mall at 32nd and Thunder, Thunderbird screaming, great is Jesus, great is Jesus. Artemis had nothing on Jesus because no other God or temple or way of living or system of belief holds a candle to him. Stop worshiping at the altars of false gods that will never provide, that will never come through, that in the end will end up like dirt. Worship the Alpha and the the Omega, the beginning and the end. Everything is held together by him and for him. And you know what? We now, people, are his temple, and nothing will stand against us as long as we worship him. You know, it's funny. Later in life, Paul would write a letter to the Ephesians, and in it, he would write these words. And, And I love what Paul does here because he's got this history with Ephesus, And this is what he writes to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. 
We are now the temple through which the world hears and sees us say, great is Jesus. And so may our devotion to him remove any other temple in our lives and may the way that we live and love others reveal the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm coming to you this morning because I know that many of us have been worshiping at the temples of false promises and false gods, to be honest. And I want to give you an opportunity this morning to repent of that. I don't know what it is, but I want to give you an opportunity this morning to confess to the living God, I, I, I have been yelling and screaming, great is, you fill in the blank for far too long. And I, I want to let that go. I, I want you to demolish it like you demolished Artemis' temple. I want you to be the sole focus of worship in my life. That everything that I do, the way that I live, would reflect who you are and what you want to do in and through my life. And so I want to give you an opportunity this morning in humility and in grace to receive God's love as we confess together, God, we are done worshiping at the temples of false promises and false gods. We're done. Destroy them in us. May you be the only one we worship. Let's, let's pray together, and I want to give us just an opportunity to do that this morning. God, we come humbly before you. Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us if there are any, God, if there are any, even a shred, that you would reveal to us the temples that we are so tempted to bow down before. God, that you would destroy that desire in us and that instead our sole commitment, our sole devotion would be towards your son, Jesus Christ. In this space, will you just take a second quietly to yourself to just confess and repent in the ways that God may be leading you to say, I'm sorry, I choose you. God, we come before you with gratitude. And knowing that 2,000 years later, hey, nobody talks about Artemis. Oh, but the world knows about Jesus. And so may the cry of our heart be, as we walk from this place, great is Jesus. And maybe we won't say it with our words, but God, I pray that we would say it loudly with our lives. And the way that we live in the way that we talk, in the way that we use our time and our energy and our money, God, that the way that we live would be thoroughly impacted by you. I believe, God, that as more people know about Jesus, not only can an individual change, but an entire society can change with it. I, would, I pray, God, that you would spark that sort of revival in us and in our city. 
that we would be screaming, great is Jesus to the very end of time. We thank you for him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.